Marai, the podcast, co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bern. Welcome to Sharai, the podcast. My name is Serena Tolino. And my name is Gianluca Parolin. Welcome to the new episode. This episode, we have Sami Ayub of the University of Texas at Austin with us. Welcome, Sami. Thank you, Gianluca and Serena, and the, for the kind invitation. Sami, you are a member of the board of the International Society for uh, Islamic Legal Studies. Can you share something more on when you became a board member and when you joined the society also? Thank you. Um, I became a member of the society uh, in, in 2012 uh, when I attended the conference uh, for the first time in Ankara, Turkey. And then I became a board member uh, in the following conference uh, in Leiden in 2012, uh, sorry, in 2015. And ever since you've been fully on uh, board membership duties, we suspect. But what do you do in your free time? <laughs> uh, so, um, one of my favorite hobby, uh, um, habits is actually I like to play soccer. Um, I'm a very big fan of the Premier League and Mohamed Salah. So, I've been uh, watching but also playing uh, on the field. So, I might surprise you with my skills in the field. What role do you play? Um, I play as a midfielder. Is this a good representation of how you play in academia as well as a midfielder? <laughs> well, uh, I'm not sure, but uh, I enjoy soccer as a as a team uh, sport. So really uh, happy to to be able to do that when I was in Egypt, but also continue this uh, while I'm um, um, as an academic as well. So, Sami, as you know, this podcast is a way of preparing the way to the conference that will take place in London. So we would like to ask you, tell us what was um, your, uh, which was your favorite conference of the International Society of Islamic Legal Studies? Um, to be honest, uh, the three conferences I attended, the one in Ankara and then uh, the one in Leiden and then uh, the last one we had in Finland, Um, I think all of them were really fantastic in terms of the audience and in terms of the members that they attended. Um, so I think, I think my favorite is just Essel's meeting every four years is really, this is my favorite meeting. Um, and it really, uh, I think what makes it really unique experience is because of its international profile, we tend to meet colleagues that we not usually meet, especially in North American Academy, or even when you usually been in the kind of, kind of, in European kind of, um, context as well. So the international society allows us to meet people beyond these circles and also makes us in a particular way that I think really hard to find somewhere else. And this very time for the 10th um, triennial conference, it will be on this side of the pond. So are you excited about uh, coming this way? I'm definitely excited about coming this way and uh, especially knowing that you're the host for this. So, uh, So I'm going to look forward for uh, uh, lots of conversation about fiqh in the, in the Egyptian TV series. You're a bad person. <laughs> uh, what do you, uh, is there something you would like really to see in our next conference? 
Well, I'd like to see you finally in person. Uh, but uh, again, uh, the type of um, individuals who we end up being on the program are really hard to meet in person otherwise, especially getting exposed to their scholarship. And I'm one of the people who really get um, more from meeting people in person, affected by their ideas and learning from their scholarship. Um, so for me, this is a really opportunity for be, kind of be able to meet people in these spaces. And London is, is, kind of, uh, is a very easy hub to travel to, I hope, and uh, can allow us some of this exposure necessary for us to be able to meet and hopefully exchange ideas and see the future of the field. Sami, you are working on a manuscript in which you are looking at the Islamic courts in Egypt. And you're particularly interested in some of the areas that haven't been particularly explored so far. And in particular, you want to look at the regulation of um, Islamic courts and how these regulations actually affected the courts, how changes in the procedures, how changes in evidentiary rules affected the way in which these courts operated um, in Egypt. So I was wondering if, uh, because we are all very intrigued by the potential of this research, so we were wondering if you could share with us some of, some of the potentials that you see in this area. Thank you, uh, look for that question. So um, for this um, uh, second book project, I intend to write a history of Islamic courts, basically looking at court decisions and evaluate these judgments and the legal reasoning in them. That in itself, I think, is very important and enriching. However, it seems to me, what's surprising to me, for example, that in Egypt, a place like Egypt, so many things have been written on Islamic courts and the, um, and the history of legal um, um, enterprise in Egypt, but I failed to find any type of works that is kind of dedicated to, to the institutional history of law in Egypt. For example, there's no written histories uh, of the Ministry of Justice in Egypt, for example, in the 19th century or early 20th century. That surprised me. Second, what comes to Islamic courts, the issue of regulation, I became only aware of this by reading, again, uh, some of the, the, the publications of the Ministry of Justice itself in the late 19th, early 20th century. And what surprised me is the consistent, persistent issuance of this, uh, what I call guided memos for Islamic judges to follow, for example, the right interpretation of the policy uh, decisions by the ministry, the issues that defined what did the jurisdiction for the courts look like, for example, in, by the late 19th century. Uh, what type of uh, claims can be accepted by the court and, uh, and no others. So this, for me, I think, can give us a much more insights into the history of Islamic courts beyond, for example, the issue of, uh, kind of intellectual history, that some people wrote about this issue in a particular way and this other respond to them. I find these to be um, necessarily limiting although enriching, but I think it does not give us a wider picture of what really happened as an institution in Egypt that can provide some of these. Again, who become a judge in this institution? A surprising aspect of me as well is that we didn't know much about Muslim judges. We didn't know their names. They are faceless. They are nameless. We tend to reduce their scholarship into a particular position in law. I think 
you would never find this treatment, for example, when you study American judges, for example. You have to know, first of all, have you trained in American law? And then we know what's his favorite food, what this guy used to go for hunting, what's his famous decisions. So these Muslim judges are not active participants, not fully human developed actors in this history. And uh, can I hope to bring to some of this into conversation. And finally, I would say is that focusing on regulation or focuses on procedure, because it's technical and because it's mundane, historians, I think, tend to think of this to be an interesting side for historical ex- kind of, uh, exercise. I would claim the opposite. I would say that these procedural matters are substantial in the ways in which how courts came to operate, how judges could to be appointed, and how justice was delivered. And especially, if you wish, on how central uh, procedural reforms were, especially in the 19th century, which is part of the period that you cover, especially, isn't it? Exactly. This is the point. So there's a rise of massive regulatory um, apparatus that being deployed in relation to not just Islamic courts, also Jewish courts, also Christian tribunals. So we have the expansion of the sphere of these secular national courts. In Egypt, there's always a balance between the sphere of the state and the sphere of the secular courts to exist, but also a sphere when Islamic courts, Jewish courts, and Christian tribunals also used to exist. What happened, however, is that that the sphere and the space for secular courts expanded significantly by consuming the entire legal sphere. So for me, I think that we need to have asked um, at least uh, unearth some of the questions and some of the issues that were raised at the time. Muslim judges, uh, again, some people said that why the ulama or the, the Muslim scholars did not resist these some of these issues. I would claim the opposite. There was a very uh, sustained uh, writings and publications and sources that tells you that famous judges did oppose, for example, the codification of, of the entire civil law in Egypt. This has not mainly happened uh, uh, against Tanhuri. Even before that, we have an actual judges in the uh, in the Egyptian uh, judiciary. Those who happen to be secular, those who happen to be Muslim judges, refused some of these issues. Okay, For certain, again, certain obvious and logical issues. But usually that used to be painted as, oh, these guys are just resisting modernity. These guys know uh, what this progressive legal regime will look like. And all these I would claim ideological cover-up for, for, for these transformations that has happening. So for me here, it comes really down to a basic even uh, issues of numbers. If you look at the number of Islamic courts in 1800, we find that at least we have between 3,382-83 courts. By 1950, we have 137 courts. So you cannot simply ignore the, again, a massive replacement of these institutions for the sake of an emerging political legal order that we can, again, see from the sources that we have, see from the responses of the scholars, but more importantly, see through the process of procedure by limiting the jurisdiction, limiting the availability of funds for them, the number of judges who can be appointed in these positions. So for me, this is as important as the issue of the kind of history of ideas. I think regulation, procedure, will commit us to ask historicized questions about what happened to Islamic legal institutions. For me, I would claim it is not really helpful to speak about the loss of Islamic law or the loss of the Sharia. I think a much more sustained conversation that we can have in the field is what happened to the institutional apparatus that maintained Islamic law 
as a system of governance and as a tradition and as a reality for people who lived in Egypt until the 1950s? That, I think, is the question. Uh, thank you, Sami. So I was wondering, uh, do you also have the data for the size of the judiciary that um, um, was um, in the uh, Islamic courts? I mean, when you looked at the, you gave us the number of the number of courts, but was also the size of the judiciary that shrank uh, just uh, in in parallel to the to the number of courts? Is that the case? That's my understanding. Uh, so that's the complication here. So the the sources might um, uh, give you some uh, only glimpses, but I think in our case, we can find more information about this. So for example, I, for the first time, learn about something called Al-Mahkam Al-Ulya Sharia, that is the Egyptian uh, Islamic Supreme Court. I've never heard of that court before. I wasn't aware of its existence, for example. But uh, but actually, that court was in Egypt, was enacted in 1898 until 1955. And that court has a jurisprudence. That jurisprudence was published. We know the names of the judges. So we can have that data and they're available. So the issue, again, so the issue is not simply that these things are in the archive, but also where to look. What exactly is the question that is guiding that type of research? In my case, I was able to find that uh, the number of courts throughout the um, 19th century in a very random booklet that was published by the Ministry of Justice in Egypt uh, in relation to what type of uh, kind of what type of rules and regulations that Islamic judges had to abide by. By the end of that book, I found every single Islamic court across Egypt, in every single village, in every single uh, governorate in the big cities, for example. I also learned for the first time as well that every single Muslim judge had a mufti helping him uh, in his decisions in terms of consultation, in terms of issues that might be difficult. So that was cancelled, of course, by, again, I think it was 1898. So we have, we have actually dates by which that we know how these transformation happened and in what direction and what's exactly the justification for some of these moves. Sami, you mentioned um, that one of the things you would like to find out is how courts were operating. And um, and you also mentioned that um, some of these decisions have been published, especially those of the superior courts. From my understanding, also from what I read, of course, that you sent to us, um, I also really um, realized that uh, you are trying to make also a contribution to social history in a way, using uh, and looking at uh, court procedure. And one of my questions would be then that of um, how important are for you archives and how um, and what does it happen if you are not granted uh, access to archives? How is the situation at the moment, generally speaking, with access uh, to archives and what challenges do you find in that direction? Uh, thank you, Serena. Uh, so this is a very important question and it faces anybody who does anything right now, especially with the current political situation in the region. So, so access is contingent, is challenging. And because I'm not really looking at the, at the court decisions themselves, that give me a, a kind of better positioning of my own interest uh, in writing that monograph. So for example, I look at, specifically at the publications by the Ministry of Justice. Some of them are available. Some of them, I was lucky to find um, kind of a lot of them actually available at Harvard here. And uh, some of them you have to get through kind of private collectors, uh, private libraries in the region. And some people have been extremely helpful in that regard. 
So for me, looking at some of these issues allowed me to get some much more, again, uh, concrete access to um, uh, some of these obscure details or even institutions, um, for example. Um, so, uh, yeah, so lack of access is a problem. And I hope everybody would have access to these things, especially if they're doing serious work on that um, in that time period on that kind of in this country. But you're right. In the current moment, things are up in the air and it might be really uh, hard some leagues, especially the risks that might come with something like these, especially if the topics that they're dealing with are not are not aligned well with the type of the politics of the region that they're trying to, uh, to explore. And maybe another question that I uh, was thinking about when I read your uh, conclusion on, um, I don't want to say too much about the case studies that uh, you are looking at, uh, because then uh, people should read your blog. But you mentioned at the end that the case study you looked at um, reveals how Islamic and Jewish courts played a role uh, in shaping social life in Egypt. And I wonder if you could tell us something more about that. Sure. So... Um... So this is really a case study that I try to bring to the larger audience. Um, I actually like to use it for my future uh, courses when I teach at the university next uh, spring. Uh, but I found a case, uh, kind of famous lawyer in Egypt. His name is Aziz Khengi. And Aziz Khengi uh, was born in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Sorry in the late 19th century, but he practiced law in the early 20th century. And he was in the circle of, kind of Muhammad Abdu. He was known to be a very, uh, a very uh, smart, very uh, good lawyer. Um, and he really uh, wrote a lot of books, especially on the modern Egyptian legal history. Every single one who wrote anything about Egyptian legal history has to go back to Aziz Khengi. Um, his writing style is fantastic. And he has this uh, kind of Uh, the uh, the vibe of a historian. So anyway, so um, so Khengi has this obscure works called uh, Mudakirat, okay? And Mudakirat can be used uh, as a meaning of memoir, but also can be used in the legal sense as actually his memos and, and petitions that he submitted to the courts in Egypt. So so can open this Mudakirat, I found this is most of the important cases to Aziz Khengi that he actually defended in front of the judges in Egypt. One of them was about being a lawyer for this Jewish lady uh, who married to a Muslim person. Um, and the case really went through a very interesting drama. But really what happened is that, that this Jewish uh, lady and this Muslim guy who converted to Judaism in order to get married to her, they went through the Jewish courts through Islamic courts and, and they went through the secular courts and they had to navigate all of the procedural and the legal issues in these three institutions. So the issue I'm trying to bring attention to is that legal pluralism as um, not just an idea, it can be only sustained as I would claim through these institutions of justice, Islamic courts, Jewish courts, Christian courts, or even secular courts. So the issue is The only, uh, that balance, once it became unsettled, legal pluralism goes out of the window. The moment in which civil secular law, okay, in Egypt, tried to consume the entire legal sphere, that's the moment that we see that legal pluralism really started to disappear completely uh, from Egypt. So here, that case study just trying to bring to reality about how individuals uh, happen to be wealthy, how to be connected, how to be in the communities that they belong to, but they're able to navigate all these three courts and the, and the, and, and the plaintiff in the case was able to get her rights, uh, financial rights out of this person. 
and the case was judged uh, again. We have the written opinions of these courts. We know the names of the judges in these institutions. I think this is really trying to bring into conversation with a much more generalized, um, uh, um, undifferentiated history about oh, uh, civil law codification is very important in order to bring Egypt into modernity. And I'm trying to say there's certain costs that comes with that. And these costs has to be known and has to be highlighted uh, so that we understand what really happened historically. Um, Sami, why do you think that uh, Aziz Khanti uh, decided to include the anecdote that you describe in your in your blog um, in his Muzakirat? Uh, that's a good question. I really cannot uh, say much about that, uh, but um, especially his intentions. So, um, so I would say the following. I think this is one of the important cases that was covered in the Egyptian newspapers. Okay. Uh, especially in the Mu'ayyid, that was 1950s. Sorry, that was 1925, excuse me, uh, 1930s. Um, so that was a big deal of a big case that has, and he wanted to show that he actually was part of that case and he was able to participate and give uh, this woman her rights uh, as he actually defended her. So the entire story is actually framed from the point of view of the plaintiff, of, of Latifa, the Jewish uh, uh, wife of this, um, of this person in the case. Thank you. Thank you a lot. That was really fascinating. And I was wondering, are you able to introduce your current research in your courses? And where do you do it when you are able to do that? So, uh, so in my teaching, uh, I usually include a couple of things. Um, first, actually, I teach two types of classes. Number one, classes for law school audience. Um, I call it comparative Middle East law, which is going to be history of Islamic law, but also history of the modern legislations in the region. I also have classes in Islamic law, which really focuses for kind of an undergraduate audience. And they focus specifically on the history and the kind of history transformation of Islamic law until the modern period. So, so in my classes, I try to bring my research by maybe assigning some of that blog post uh, for, for my students or some other colleagues who actually publish in that blog uh, in the, uh, the Sharia Astros blog post. I think it's really helpful because it kind of is written for general audience and give you some insights into this process. Do you have any specific teaching trick that you would like to share with our <laughs> listeners? Sure. Um, so one of the teaching tricks that I do is that I include in my uh, seminars, uh, as, as well as in my undergraduate courses, something I call uh, legal activity, in which we have this hypothetical uh, hypothetical case study. For example, Zaid. Uh, hit Amr, where Amr was in a tree or something like that. Uh, what is the um, the consequences of that litigation in a court, for example? Somebody, get, uh, well, uh, Fatima married to Muhammad, who wanted to divorce her, but she has uh, certain legal rights uh, to him. Uh, so what to do in that situation as a judge? And ask people to kind of role play these issues and we try to work together hopefully solve it. So I think it's going to be nice engagement together in this <laughs> uh, activity. They learn more about how the law function, they learn more about how the process uh, occurs, and so on and so forth. What do you call it again? Uh, legal activity. <laughs> legal activity. <laughs> and what is your favorite thing to teach in Islamic law? Do you have a favorite that maybe you don't? <laughs> uh, so in terms of subject or in terms of uh, books? Well, I would actually go for subject. For subjects, um, my favorite, to be honest, is um, the conversation when it comes to um, 
not just family law, because people really focus mainly on kind of family law. I think really what comes to transactions uh, is much more interesting, I think, because it can give you much more logic about property, more logic about sale, uh, more logic. So uh, kind, of, kind of credit, that might be boring and annoying for people, but really this is what everyone had to deal with today in everyday life. And so when it comes to a book then, what is your favorite book to teach? I teach Halak for sure. Uh, the, the, the Green Book, the Sharia book, uh, I think is really written very well. Give you, uh, again, one of the most holistic and most important uh, piece of writing to introduce to any students right now, to be honest. Thank you. Thank you so much. So thank you a lot, Sami, for, uh, for your time and for having been with us. And we hope to see you in London in May. Thank you so much, uh, Serena and Gianluca. That was wonderful. Thank you, Sami. Thank you.